here and welcome to another String Session podcast. Today's guest is the amazing Jewel. Over her outstanding career, she has earned four Grammy nominations, sold over 30 million albums worldwide, and has started her own charity, Never Broken, to support youth from all socioeconomic backgrounds. Later in the episode, we will be performing her newest single, Grateful, so be sure to stay tuned for that. But also, you guys are going to love listening to Jewel. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I love to talk about. She is so inspirational in her background, her life story. It's like you're about to listen to an abridged self-help book. I mean, seriously, she has so many tools for how to live a happier life that are jam-packed into this episode. So I hope you love what she said. I know I gained so much from it. So let's. Stop talking, Lindsay, and let's bring on Jewel. Please request okay. recording permission. I requested. Perfect. <laughs> if somebody would grant me the permission to record. Pause, stop recording. I think that means we're recording. Ah, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> do you do accents a lot? I do. Yeah, and that just happened too, didn't it? Yeah, I did that out loud. It did. <laughs> <laughs> There's another human listening to me. <laughs> My son all actually, the time. Yeah, my son asks for different characters. Like we have a, like a host of about five different people that he really loves, and they're all me. And it's he might need therapy when he's older. I'm not really sure. <laughs> well, no, don't we all? We might as well have fun while getting there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's really sweet. How old is your son? Uh, he's eight. Eight o'clock. He's eight. <laughs> I have not been sleeping much. He's eight. Oh, and he's your only son. Yeah. Oh, what a fun age. It is. And how are you guys doing right now? I know that this is like just such a, you know, such a heavy time. It's, we're all learning a lot. We're all experiencing a lot. And I'm sure that must be even more challenging when you have an eight-year-old son. So how have you been? We've been doing well. Um, This is a, uh, how do I, where do I even start with it? It's an interesting time to be a parent, certainly challenging. Um, There's a lot that's being asked of us with the schoolwork, et cetera. Um, I think it's easier with an eight-year-old. I'm glad my son isn't five months old or even a two or three-year-old toddling around and not being able to get outside. So eight's a pretty good age um, for this, if this is going to happen. So I feel lucky that way. But I think it's also a profound moment to be a parent and just frankly to be alive When you're going to be in a relationship, you have to evolve, right? If we're in a relationship to a partner or to our children, we have to evolve. Love is asking us to evolve all the time to stay in that relationship. And it's interesting with COVID and the way I I see it at least is we're being asked to evolve quickly and in real time to stay in relationship to nature. We have to redefine what connection means, what connectivity means, how nourishing are our forms of connection. Being given a time to really have to think about a lot of this and I find it very it's a very potent thing it's not necessarily the most comfortable um, yep. but if you do have some skill sets to go inward and get yourself to start evolving letting gold go of old thoughts and beliefs trying to find and adopt new ones uh, then it can be a really productive time absolutely and I've been thinking a lot about like, how do we take what we're all experiencing right now and like move forward? And I'm like, how does, how does change happen in the world? And I think that what I've come to is the most profound way to do it is by teaching an eight-year-old, you know, sharing this with 
like the children and like in the home, there's no better place to teach and to like change culture than in each individual home. So just hearing the way that you're approaching this is like, I'm like, yes, that's exactly what the world needs right now is like to be in the home and, and use it as a time to learn. So I love that you shared that. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I think we have a really atrophied skill set as humans to handle pain, to handle uncertainty. You know, as humans, we actually are built for it. We just haven't had to use that muscle in a really long time. And so we don't really know how to think about it. We've had high anxiety for a very long time prior to COVID. You know, our suicide rates have actually gone up 60 to 70% since 2006. So we haven't been doing well prior to being trapped in our house with our own mind and where we don't have the same distractions we usually do. So I think it's bringing a lot of that to the surface. But for me, you know, because I think about that too, how do we change? How do we, uh, how do we look at this process and not just spin our wheels or devolve, but how do we change and evolve? And for me, I see two paths. Uh, mm-hmm. One path is to introspect. It's, uh, it's four steps, death, sorry, introspection, death, rebirth, and wisdom. So introspection mm-hmm. is diving in, looking inward. Death means letting go of thoughts, belief systems that don't serve you. Rebirth is accepting new thoughts, belief systems that do serve you better. When you act on them, you have wisdom. That's not a real comfortable process, but I think that's like the best case scenario. The alternate is suppression, fear, disempowerment, and doubt. So if we're not introspecting, we're going to suppress what we're feeling. If we can't let go of old thoughts, we're going to hang on to them and cling to them in fear. If we can't accept new thoughts or systems, we're going to feel disempowered. And if we can't act on them in wisdom, we're going to feel doubtful, doubtful of all of our choices, doubtful about our futures. And that's what I'm very passionate about helping people hopefully avoid that road and go for the other road. So before I dive into like everything you're talking about, because like you're so profound in the way you speak about this. I'm like, I really want to let you dive into this more because also I know you've studied a lot of this. But first, I think it's really powerful when people hear kind of why you are the way you are and where you've come from. And so in your formative teen years, you share so much about how much you struggled. You moved out when you were 15 and you were homeless, living in your car, like just basically in survival mode as a 15 year old. And then several years later, you had one of the most like successful albums of all time. So in that gap between A and W, what did you experience that changed you and allowed you to overcome such experiences? When I moved out when I was 15, I knew that statistically kids like me end up repeating the cycle. So statistically, I knew I should end up in an abusive relationship or on drugs or in a ditch somewhere. <laughs> and I didn't want to be a statistic. And so I called it emotional English. Uh, we're taught an emotional language in our household it's kind of invisible to us. My dad, for instance, Mm -hmm. my dad was raised in an abusive household. He swore he would never become abusive. He knew it was hurtful and painful, but he learned a million and one little data points of how to deal with conflict, how to deal with, you know, what is love, what is nourishing, what isn't. And all those data points add up to skill sets. And, you know, if you were raised with speaking French, let's say, and you can say, French hurt my feelings. French is a horrible language. I never want to speak French when I grow up unless you learn Spanish, you're going to speak French because we have to communicate. And that's how our emotional language is. So I knew that it was my job to figure out a new emotional English, if as it were, which is daunting because mm-hmm. there's no school to go to. Um, 
And so I set out like very clearly to look at this idea of nature versus nurture. I remember writing it in my notebook when I was 15. I was reading a lot of uh, philosophy at the time. And if I didn't receive good nurture, could I get to know my real nature? Was that ever open for me? Could I get to see who I really was beneath programming, if you will? And so I did pretty good. I started to watch people. I watched people that had behaviors I admired. I'd try to figure out how to emulate them. I got myself through school. But by the time I was 18 and was living in San Diego at this point to take care of my mom who was there, she was sick. I was working in a computer warehouse and my boss propositioned me and I wouldn't have sex with them. He wouldn't give me my paycheck. Couldn't pay my rent, started living in my car. Then my car got stolen. I started stealing. Um, I was having panic attacks. I was agoraphobic. And I was shoplifting one day and just saw my reflection. And I was like, holy shit, I'm a statistic. I didn't beat the odds. I tried so hard, so consciously to, to beat the odds. And I didn't, I didn't beat them. And I remember this quote by Buddha that said, happiness doesn't depend on who you are or what you have. It depends on what you think. And I had this weird privilege of being stripped of everything but my thoughts. It's all I had left to focus on. And so I decided to see if I could turn my life around one thought at a time. And I couldn't witness my thoughts in real time because of my anxiety. So I decided to reverse engineer and watch my hands because your hands are the servants of your thought. If you want to know what you're thinking, watch what your hands are doing because it's your thought cooled down into actions. So I began to take my notebook and just write down everything my hands did for two weeks, which is a silly life plan, but it's what I did. And I mean, there was a takeaway at the end of that. I, I obviously quit believing in myself. I quit believing I could hold the job down, et cetera. But a much more interesting thing happened. My anxiety disappeared when I was doing it, which was shocking uh, and very, very noticeable. Mm -hmm. And I started to learn a lot that year. That was one of the most productive years of my life in learning how to realize if we're addictive by nature, I was around a lot of addiction. I never did drugs, um, but I got addicted to shoplifting. So I'm not sure it's a ton better. But if our brains are addictive, there must be a biological reason that serves us. It can't just be a mistake like, oops, sorry about that humanity, you're addictive. It has to be a reason. And so I started looking at what I called triads, these habit loops, and learning how to reprogram my brain. And then once I realized I could start reprogramming really on a much more like a neurological level, things started to really turn around for me. That is so incredible. I just, I love how you just had these moments that made you stop and evaluate and decide that you wanted something different than what life told you you could have, you know, and the statistics told you you could have, and that maybe in that moment you believed you could have, but you decided, I want to believe something else. Like that is so incredible and such a testament to the fact of like, we all sometimes reach those points and there are make or break moments. And if anybody listening feels like they're broken, like this is your chance to turn yourself into the kind of person that you want to be like you did. I just think that is so incredible. And I want to nerd out with you a little bit. Can you talk more about the rewiring of the brain? Because I love that kind of stuff. I find it fascinating. I've done very surface level research on it myself. I would love to hear you talk about that more because you've studied it and developed programs about it. Yeah, a lot of it when I was younger was intuitive. I didn't know any science behind it. I just started seeing that it worked. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. So the triads, I now call them habit loops, but back then I didn't, that wasn't a word I had thought of. Uh, I just noticed this system of three that I had a stimulus, a response, and a reward. Um, it's kind of basic behavioral science. So stimulus, I was homeless. Um, my response was stealing, and my reward was I felt in control. 
felt like I was taking care of myself. I felt exciting neurochemicals and neurotransmitters coursing through my system. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, shortly followed by shame, et cetera, which would trigger me again. So I couldn't change number one right away. I worked on not being homeless. I did job searches. You know, it's very hard. You know, you start looking homeless after a while. Uh, you don't look the same as everybody. You start walking down the street and people avoid you and cross the street to not have to just even look at you. Um, it's very dehumanizing in a way that's very hard to describe to people. Uh, when you don't have a street address, nobody wants to give you a job on an application, you know, things like that are hard. Um, but anyway, yeah. I was working on it, but you couldn't, changing number one was hard. Number two is easy, uh, er. Number two, stealing, right? That was my response. You can work with your response pretty easily. So I decided uh, that I would write instead of steal. I liked writing. I had written poetry since I was young. It always made me feel better. My goal was not to be a professional writer. I never thought that was in the cards for me. Um, I thought that was for talented people. I didn't consider myself that talented. And quite frankly, I think if you read my work back then, I don't think anybody would particularly think I was much different than any other journaling teenager. I just knew it made me feel better. And that was probably a better thing to do with my time. And it felt crappy. So when I was triggered and I wrote, it wasn't as exciting or rewarding as the habit I had built around stealing. But I forced yeah. myself to stick with it just out of will. And after about two or three weeks, my system resensitized. My system, you know, there's two types of neurotransmitters, excitatory and calmative. Feeling a calmative like serotonin and, and those types of things make you feel calm and relaxed and happy aren't maybe yeah. as sexy as adrenaline and the excitatory neurotransmitters. So it took me a while to become sensitive to that being a reward. Mm -hmm. But I felt calmer. I felt more centered every time I did it. And with time, it became addictive. I got addicted to writing. And I became very prolific because every time I wanted yeah. to steal, I made myself write. And I liked to steal a lot. So I became a very prolific writer. Um, and I had nothing else to do, really, at that time besides yeah. street sing and busk a little bit so I started writing a lot of songs a lot of poetry and you get better at it because mm -hmm. you do it more and more so that's an example of one way to work with habits it's it's called a habit loop I suggest with people they start with pain points um let's say anger is an issue we usually know the things that are uncomfortable for us like s stealing stands out I can look at my life and go that was this is uncomfortable that's what I need to work on um, yeah. So I would just recommend people start to look for kind of these pain points and then just replace it. Say, instead of yeah. getting angry, I'm going to take five deep breaths, whether I like it or not. Something like that. Uh, these are exercises that ended up getting proven mm. later to work by a neuroscientist, which was crazy. I never thought something like that would happen. Happy to share more yeah. exercises, but that's, that's one of them. I love that. And you've developed a training around this, right? Like behavioral rewiring training, like that's now science proven. Is that something that's released yet? Or is it something you're still developing? It's released. It's on a website called jewelneverbroken.com. Jewelneverbroken.com. Mm -hmm. I wrote an autobiography awesome. in 2015 and I mentioned these exercises, but I didn't say specifically what they were. Uh, mm -hmm. And so people began asking me and I developed this website yeah. in response to that. I have been using the skill set in our youth foundation. We formed the foundation about 18 years ago. The thing I wow. really am passionate about is what do you do when you don't have resources? Do you get left behind? Are you not allowed to change? Are you not allowed to be happy just because you don't have money for a therapist? Or right. what if you have money for a therapist and talking hasn't really changed your life? 
that happens a lot too. I really right. like results. I'm interested in results. I want people's lives to feel better. I want my life to feel better. And so I took these tools and started working with the most at-risk and disadvantaged children. Children that are victims of rape, that have had multiple suicide attempts, uh, high anxiety, et cetera, and no other resources. And we gave them this toolkit that I knew worked for me. And I was really curious to see if it would work for other people, and it did. Um, I mean, it's amazing if you talk to some of these kids, you get to see what it looks like on the other side of suicide, of yeah. being suicidal. Beautiful people that have learned at 16 that they are not their thoughts. Not every thought and feeling is a fact, and you don't have to engage in every thought and feeling. Uh, like Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. It's I perceive what I think, therefore I am. So if you can perceive you're scared, you're something other than scared, you're the observer of it. And once you strengthen that relationship with the observer through meditation, through mindfulness, you start to really begin, uh, how do I describe it? It's like being, um, if your body was a car, your brain is not the driver, it's the steering wheel. And we can go on autopilot. So a lot of the times the reason we become our parents, if you will, is because we've neurologically gone on autopilot. Our brain works for us. It is a steering wheel. The observer, when we're the observer of our thoughts, that gives us the opportunity to get off of autopilot and do the hard work of changing. But, you know, being dysfunctional is hard work too. So you might as well do some other hard work that leads to a better outcome. I love that. Being dysfunctional is hard work too. Because I think it, we've all found ourselves in that place of this realization of, wow, I am not happy with where I'm at. I'm a little dysfunctional. I'm a lot dysfunctional right now. And yeah, that's a daunting task to think to change. But yeah, it's, it's exhausting being dysfunctional. So I love that. And I just love everything you've shared. It, it puts a lot of power in, you know, for everyone that there is power to change. There's hope. And, you know, I just want to give a huge shout out to you. You are so inspiring with the amount of like active philanthropic work you have done. Like, I just couldn't believe everything you've done, like ch multiple charities you've started or founded or been at the head of or been an ambassador for. Like, there's higher ground for humanity. You deliver 12 million signatures to Capitol Hill in response to um, breast cancer patient protection. Um, you served as an honorary chairperson of the, the Help the Homeless Walk. I mean, it goes on and on. You raise awareness for at-risk youth and mental health. Your children's foundation that you spoke of, what has made you so like, well, one, what has made you so philanthropic and how has it changed your life or affected your life? You know, it's interesting when you're raised really poor. I remember for a while I was raised in Alaska and I was raised on a homestead large to a large degree. My family's homestead, very poor, but we had land so uh, we could have a garden and things like that and good food. When we moved to Anchorage to be with my mom, it's a whole other situation. Being poor in a city's hard. Um, you don't have a garden and those things. We lived in an area where there was, it was project housing. And the generosity of those people, I will never forget. People had nothing, just absolutely yeah. nothing. And I got asked to, to a prom, I think in 10th grade or something, 11th grade. And my friend's mom, who was single, supporting two children, so broke, so poor, saved up money and got an extra little job to buy me a dress. I mean, just so sweet oh and so kind. And the 
when you have nothing, you're very aware of your interdependence. You know, you're very aware that you need your neighbor to watch your kids because something just came up and it's some kind of shit show and you need to go deal with it. Yeah. You really rely on one another. You don't have a false sense of, I don't need anybody. I was surprised right. when I became affluent and was around more affluent circles that nobody helps each other. I mean, people will be philanthropic and they will donate. But it's not this tight knit, like we rely on one another. We're arm in arm, you know, we're locked arms and I got you and I got your back. That isn't the same. And I thought, how interesting is it that the poorest among us sometimes are often the most generous. Um, when you've been down and out, when you've truly, truly suffered, you don't want anyone to suffer. You don't want anyone to feel that way, especially when you know all it takes is some kindness, really. Like if you can give money, it's amazing and it really helps. But just volunteering, um, just smiling at somebody who's homeless, you'd be surprised how far that goes. And if yeah. you're in a position to help, like, what else am I going to do with my time? Like, go eat. I don't know. I don't. What else would I do? I don't know. <laughs> oh, I, I love just hearing you talk. You talk so just matter-of-factly about it that um, it's like it becomes a no-brainer, the logic of the way the situation is and the way you speak about it. It just is like, Lindsay Sterling, get off your butt and go out there and serve somebody. You know what I mean? It's, I think what you talking and like interviews I've heard of you in the past, it really is such a call to action, the way that you just speak because it's the way you live. And I love that. So just thank you for being you and for inspiring so many people. And, um, you know, I, I just, I just think you're amazing. And, um, your life in general has just been such a testament to resilience. And I think right now, more than any time we've seen in our lifestyle, the world needs a lesson on just like hope and resilience. And so I guess, you know, for anyone who had plans, whose plans are no longer possible, what advice do you have for someone right now? Uh, I think of a couple things. I'd like to talk about resiliency. I'd like to talk about the word hope. I would like to talk about those two paths and encouraging people to walk the path of introspection, letting go, rebirth, and wisdom. Yeah. But I would like to start in a place of helping people get excited. You know, we read history books and we all want to be part of the great marches of the 60s. This is it. Like, welcome yeah. to history. Welcome to change. Uh, change doesn't happen during times of peace. Change doesn't happen when you're comfortable. Change happens and it's messy and it's chaotic. And this is what it looks like. And the future is unknown. And you get to shape it. And it's a privilege. And it's exciting. And it's hard. And it takes guts. And it takes courage. And more than anything, it takes a lot of heart. Because everybody in the world, everybody for the first time, every world power is afraid of the same thing for the first time. We're all afraid of a virus, this virus, as, as we should be. So we're all being asked to do our part in evolving. And with the recent killing of George Floyd, it was a catalyst that dropped into a tinderbox. If you look at just America, we have 40 million people out of jobs. That's higher, I think, than the Great Depression. But during the Great Depression, we were productive. We had factories working. We're not productive right now. All of our businesses are closed for the most part. We're in for a world of hurt. Uh, the economic mm -hmm. situation is not good. Um, there are many, many people that right now, I think the stimulus package is sort of helping people 
it's not going to last forever. We're, we're in for a long, hard haul, and we have to decide how do we want to walk through this. Will we be fractured into a million different parts fighting each other, or will we realize we're one species and we can afford kindness and we can afford compassion? There is a great myth that if I'm hurting, I can't see your hurt. That's not true. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my white friends feel like, hey, I'm not white privileged because I'm broke as hell and I'm about to go homeless. I'm one paycheck away from homelessness. Don't tell me I'm privileged. It's not exactly what that term means, but I understand. How can you tell somebody who's in pain that somebody else's pain is more important? But again, nobody's saying that. It's not that somebody's yeah. pain is more important. It's helping bear witness and hold arms in brotherhood and in sisterhood for all of us who are in pain. And I think we're being challenged in America to sit in this tinderbox where there's the pandemic, there's fear, anxiety, people are becoming agoraphobic, they're afraid for their lives. They have no jobs to return to. And this was prior to the protests that are going on. So George Floyd lit a match, not George Floyd, the, the incident, you know, the tragic murdering of him was this catalyst that dropped into this powder keg, if you will, and tensions are high. And so we each get to do our part in practicing compassion, realizing compassion and condoning are two different things. Uh, you know, because I have compassion for somebody doesn't mean I would condone looting, for instance, something like that. Uh, to get people to stop and remember our shared humanity is really important and that multiple things are going on. And one doesn't mean this doesn't, isn't going on. Um, it means they're all going on at once and how much space can we hold for that experience with hope. You know, I have a funny relationship with that word. I was adopted by American natives when I was 15 and one of my teachers taught me, we don't hope. Hope and fear are like the opposite sides of the same coin. When I say, I hope I do good on this test. It's like saying, I'm afraid I won't. Hope without action is meaningless. Hope all you want. I'm into action. So yeah. I'm into take the steps you need to create change. So uh, with the pandemic, for instance, worry is a misuse of creativity. It's a misuse of creative energy. So instead of spending that creative energy on wondering all the bad things that could happen, <laughs> letting our mind run away with us and tell us scary stories, use that creativity and dedicate it into what thoughts don't serve me anymore? What relationships don't serve me anymore? Um, and then take good action. Protect yourself. Uh, listen to medical guidelines, et cetera. We don't, we don't hope and we don't worry. We actively create our lives. And the more people can start to dig into the fact that we are all artists, we are all the artists of our life, we all get a say. Um, if we care to show up and make good on that, um, I think there's going to be a bright future ahead. But like I said, it's a... It's going to be a slog through a long, hard time, but it's something that could potentially bring us together. Absolutely. So well, like formulated the way you just put all that together. And it's really cool how it sounded like a broad version of what you talked about that you had to experience yourself. It's just experiencing it on a world level, which at the end of the day, it starts with every single person in themselves. And so it's really cool to be like, it's all connected. Like, world coming together and ourselves coming together it's all going to happen only if it starts here so i know that was really cool to listen to you talk about that you know and i also want to talk just a little bit about the song the new song that you just released <laughs> grateful so beautiful i'm so i'm having such a good time working on it and um 
it's it's just so beautiful and i you haven't released like a new body of work in a while and so i'm curious why was grateful the first song i've been working on the album for gosh i guess a year at least uh this is the first mm -hmm. album i've written from scratch in my entire career believe it or not because I was prolific so early on and continued to be prolific, I never had to write an album. I always had thousands of songs in my back catalog and I would just pick oh. songs out of them for every record. I might write one song per record and I wrote every genre my whole life. So if I wanted to make a pop album, I typically had all the pop songs in there in that stockpile or all the country songs in that stockpile. But with this record, I wanted it to be all brand new, who I was now, I'm 45, uh, and I wanted it to be me now, and it was so hard to write. It took a while, I think I wrote over 200 songs for this record to get 10 that I liked, which isn't the best batting average, but hey, what are you gonna do? <laughs> I think it's typical, you know, like, <laughs> you gotta dig for the gold, you know? <laughs> yeah. It was definitely that. I see why middle-aged artists do a lot of drugs because it would have been easier than the amount of like self-therapy I had to do to break through to something new that felt new and fresh and vital. Um, yeah. With Grateful, it definitely wasn't the song I would ever think of leading with. It's not a up-tempo song, but because of the pandemic, it felt like the right song because it is a lesson I learned while I was homeless and a lesson that I thought would be able to help people now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things you talked about when you were talking about being homeless is that it left you with nothing except your thoughts and realizing that like, wow, this is all I have. And because that's all you had, you realized how powerful they could be. And um, so, you know, I don't know, it's true that your thoughts and gratitude and guiding them with intention is, is a powerful, powerful tool. And I'm curious, how does gratitude play a role in your daily life now? When I was homeless, I realized there's only two basic states of being. There's dilated and contracted. And you cannot be in two states at once. Mm -hmm. And so I began to journal and keep track because I realized every thought, feeling, or action led to one of those two states. So every time I was anxious, I started to write down what thought, feeling, or action did I just participate in? And I'd write it down. Anxiety is mm -hmm. kind of like... Um, I don't know, food poisoning maybe. When you eat something that's bad for you, you have a really strong physical reaction and your body's like, don't eat that, it's bad for you. Our anxiety yeah. can be very similar. It's a way of your body communicating to you that a thought, feeling, or action doesn't agree with you. Your entire life yeah. may not agree with you. You might be living a life that does not agree with your nature. You gotta look at it. So for me, I began to also then write down every thought, feeling, or action that caused me to relax, dilate, open, feel calmer. And you see a definite pattern, you know, joy, love, curiosity, observation, generosity, all dilate you. Fear, worry, anxiety, uh, greed, jealousy, etc., all contract you. And so I was having panic attacks. I was really, really suffering from bad panic attacks. And panic feels like this. So I wanted to see if I could force my system to dilate by engaging and a thought, feeling, or action that I had written down that dilated me. So I chose, I chose gratitude. The trick is you have to have your whole system feel it. You can't just mentally be like, I'm grateful for my health. So I realized with gratitude, when you experience it, your whole system is gonna dilate. And that's 
neurophysical. So your vascular system dilates instantly. Your blood pressure drops instantly. Your neurotransmitters change instantly. And you can actually see in brain scans that the blood flow changes. Um, a lot of times when we have severe anxiety, especially panic attacks, the blood pulls out of our frontal lobes and lights up our amygdala and it hijacks us. So when you force your system to dilate, your blood is now going to go back into your frontal lobe and you're going to make better decisions and you're going to have different neurotransmitters flooding your system. Yeah. So I remember the first time I got it to work, I was on a street corner. I was homeless. I felt a panic attack coming on. I remembered, okay, I have to become really deeply grateful for something. And I saw, I was just really struck by the light filtering through the trees. It was a palm tree. And uh, the way the wind was just moving the palm leaves. And I noticed on my body, there's this beautiful pattern, like a lacy shadow dress. And I became just profoundly grateful, profoundly grateful. I hadn't killed myself, profoundly grateful. I'd never been arrested, profoundly grateful for a lot of things. And I relaxed and I was able for the very first time to ward off a panic attack. And that's what I wrote grateful about the song. Um, politicians don't control our happiness. Only if we give it away. It's ours. We get to control and determine our emotional state, our internal state. Um, peace isn't the absence of something. It's the willingness to come into harmony with what is. So we're always so busy trying to get rid of anxiety and get rid of this thing that makes us upset and get rid of that thing that makes us upset when really it's about inviting in your anxiety, inviting in your anger, sitting with it and going, what do you need? What are you trying to tell me? And when you do that, it takes a lot of that energy away and it begins to transform and transmute. So that's what the song's about. That's so beautiful. It's um, really powerful to think of anxiety that way. I have a lot of, um, fans that talk about anxiety, you know, and ask how to, how to help. And, um, I love that you share that anxiety is not always the, the enemy. You treat it almost like a friend. Like, what do you need? How, what are you trying to tell me? You know, like, cause I'm sure that the way you've looked at it is that it's a tool to teach you something. Like there's something to be learned from the way we're feeling. It didn't just come from nowhere. I think that's so profound and so cool. And, and also beautiful that one of the most profound gratitude moments that you've ever experienced happened when you had nothing, you know? And um, yeah, there's yeah. no excuse. I don't want to hear excuses from anyone. Yeah. Always have something to be grateful for, even if it's, like I said, nothing. There's something. Um, and again, yeah. the reason we want to do that is to get ourselves in a position to make good choices, right? If I'm contracted, I won't see the doors that are around me. Um, I'll be bitter. I'll be negative. I'll say everything sucks and everything's stacked against me. I spent a lot of my life that way. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. But when you start to allow your system to dilate, it puts you in gear. It's like having a transmission. Now you're in gear. Now you're going to see these tiny little places where you can make uh, improvements in your life, tiny little places. And I swear to you, our outer world really is a reflection of our inner world. And that really is within our control. You know, life is full of these wild, dramatic energies that we don't control. I don't get to control all the stuff that happens to me and all the bad things that happen to me in my life. I do get to choose how it changes me though. And that's empowering. Amen. That is really empowering. One thing that I, in recent years, have really gotten into is meditation. And I know that's something that you speak to a lot. So how is meditation a part of your life? 
Yeah, meditation is becoming much more popular. The term mindfulness, I think, is also a really popular world word. Um, I like to think of it as, well, let's define mindfulness because it's a weird word. Uh, a lot of people use it and kind of throw it around. Mindfulness just means conscious presence, means awareness. When we're aware, we're now engaged, we can create change in our lives. Um, mindfulness uh, doesn't work without the ability to learn to be aware, present. So I look at meditation as the bicep curl in the gym. Mm -hmm. It helps us build a muscle for presence because presence is a learned skill. And we grow in our ability to remain present most of the time, almost all day, we're not actually present. I mean, how many times have I sat with my child yeah. and he's talking and I'm going, uh-huh, but I'm thinking about something else. Being present right. takes, it's a skill. So meditation is this bicep curl, literally. They've actually learned that in eight weeks, you can grow new folds in your frontal lobe. It literally is a workout for your brain. It can grow gray matter and it builds your ability to be present. But unless we put that muscle to work on our day, our lives won't change. That's why you see all these beautiful people that meditate and then in the grocery line, they rage and they yell at the person in front of them. It's like, whoops, unless you're meditating, you're not that happy. So to me, there's two aspects. There's meditation and then what I call mindfulness in motion, where you have to take that awareness and choose to pick specific personality traits and begin to change them. You can only change them when you have awareness, when you have the ability to be present. Um, and that's what that website, Jewel Never Broken, offers is you can see how to meditate on it, a really simple form of meditation to begin. And then also then taking that next step of putting that muscle to work, if you will. I love that. You know, something I'm like a project I'm recently starting to, to begin is maybe an album of meditation music. And I, just because I love listening to subtle music. So I'm going to hit you up. I'm going to hit you up when it's time that I've, I've got something. If you are ever interested, I think it'd be super fun for me personally to write music for meditation. I would love that. I love listening to you talk. And I, I've thoroughly enjoyed like learning more about your life. I, for one, I'm going to go get your book after learning about you. I'm like, I want to read more. I want to learn more. And I can't wait for your album to come out. When does it come out? I have no idea. I don't know how we're going to release it. I mean, none of us can tour. Typically, right? We try and release right. albums when we tour, but ah, we'll see. <laughs> I have two songs out. One is <laughs> one song's called Grateful and the other song's called No More Tears. Awesome. Well, we're all going to be waiting for it and excited. Um, just thank you so much again for your time and for your wisdom and for all the positivity you put into the world, right? I think we always need it, but now more than ever. So thank you so much for being here. And it was so fun to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, really excited for our collaboration. Absolutely. All right. Have a beautiful day. Mwah. All right. Mwah. Bye. I mean, wow. She's just so inspiring. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel so uplifted right now. Ugh. So anyways, before I say something awkward and ruin the mood that she has created, um, we're just going to cut right to it. And now Jewel and I are going to perform together her newest single, Grateful. When everything's wrong When I can't find my soul When darkness is all I see There is 
is a remedy It's all the little things that make the world go round It's all the little things that are most powerful There's no politician, no sky to die No one, no one can take the love from my heart The sun gonna shine And in this heart of mine The sun gonna shine And in this heart of mine The sun gonna shine Ooh, it's true Cause I can't always be grateful Ooh, 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 ooh Ooh, ooh, ooh Ooh, 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 ooh When the loudest sound Is your own life crashing down And when your friends, when your friends they don't come around There's one true thing I've found It's all the little things, the bells that ring I'm gonna choose the bright side to see and No, no, no one can take that from me Cause the sun gonna shine in this heart of mine The sun gonna shine in this heart of mine The sun's gonna shine, ooh, it's true The sun